0: I can't think of anything to say this evening. <laughs> Does anyone have any questions? Those are all very... Uh, like there's a, there's a relaxed state of the mind where uh, there's calm and Clarity mindfulness uh, investigation uh, in uh, Dhamma is ability to to look at and to, to contemplate, reflect on Dhamma investigate and so the, these uh, This means a mind that is like the factors can be contemplated, uh, just to notice what what they actually are as you're experiencing them. What is calm? What is joy? Brightness? Uh, serenity? A mind that is completely kind of open, receptive. Relaxed, at ease. So, these, all these factors are very much part of everything else, really. Virya and Sati and um, Piti, Pasadhi, Upeka. You can see the more the more you relax mentally, let go of things mm-hmm. and relax uh, then, and open up. Mm-hmm. That's why a lot of beginning meditation is really quite cathartic because you're releasing things like fears and desires that one has suppressed. But so sometimes you go through some rather heavy... Uh, experiences of when, when Pandora's box has been opened up, and all the f- theories fly out. All the things that have been kept <coughs> suppressed. and. <coughs> But then I want once that is uh this is what, what Westerners sometimes make mistakes in, is that they tend to to think that mm-hmm. that you have to have catharses all the time. Mm-hmm. But you don't. I mean you just need one catharsis really, that's it. <laughs> just open the box up once and let everything out. But the uh the idea that you should be, should be uh, that there's something suppressed, or uh, this kind of way that we tend to look at ourselves is to notice how Westerners tend to think about themselves as having all kinds of problems and and latent uh, tendencies and suppressed feelings and fears and all that lurking. Inside oneself, <clears throat> so that as long as that view is is grasped, then you're always going to be looking for something, you're always going to be imagining you you haven't come to terms yet, you haven't faced something, or that there's something really deep menacing, deep problem or some frightening, latent tendency that might rise up anxiety, worry, all these things result from all the possibilities you can imagine of of uh, things that might be wrong with you. But in the Pachubana Dhamma, the here and now Dhamma, all you can really know then is just the way it is now. If, if certain uh, unpleasant feelings are arising or present in the, in the moment than to re- acknowledge them know and notice and, and uh, don't make any problems about them But you can see from the factors of enlightenment just like uh damauriccio is uh definitely uh, is not a passive state where you're just kind of sitting there in a trance and suddenly zapped by a light is that i mean you're actually looking you know there's 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 intelligence there's brightness there's there's uh, awareness there's these are coming right from the still point of being it's not a passive state where the personality view and any 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 perspective from the assumptions of personality will always give the, will always be a division will always create this divisiveness to where you're waiting for something to happen something to happen to you something to something to rise up inside you or something to come at you from outside or whatever way. It's still whether it's a view of something internal or something external, it's still a view and and a division that one is grasping. And I think in the, especially in the Judaic, Christian and Islamic world, this these, these This is very much the, the perspective of, of a kind of monotheistic religious view of God as, a, as a something which is these, these are very divisive religious forms, actually. They tend to create this perspective of, of subject and object very strongly. where the more the hindu buddhist approach is much more one of that uh, of the here and now Pachubana uh and the the whole thing is is merely a a is to awaken to truth rather than to is, is more of an awakening process uh, rather than than some, than a kind of waiting process or uh, seeking something the ineffable the, the perfection that's always been and never changes uh, is to be realized rather than to be found our way of thinking though is very much Based on that christian form isn't it jewish christian relationship of god to as a as a as some external force mm. or oneself as a relationship the relationship of a of a of a of a child to a father uh that is uh or the this is very much the uh the idea of we we seek and beseech and and uh we must uh, obey or we must surrender too where the gnostic approaches uh of religious religion uh the identity is no longer uh as as a, through separation but realizing the the, the 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 perfection that has never been absent, but only been missed out of delusion, out of ignorance. That's where it's so important to really understand the way things are. This way, I say through vipassana meditation uh, and through the four noble truths. Uh, the, uh, eight, the Eightfold Path, the Pratichya is are just very skillful conventions to investigate with, the Dhamma Vichayo investigations. So that, that there's no, uh, if you really do it thoroughly, if it's thorough, then you can, then there's no, you get beyond any doubt. It's so clear, so very obvious. No longer just based on a on a on a vague belief or or on an idea but it's very difficult to to for people to 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 <laughs> not be caught in doubt because they the identities of one's life very much with the personality, with rites and rituals, with rules, with traditions, with uh, all of these, uh, with with ideas, with theories, with ideals. And as long as there is attachment to those, then, then doubt is the natural result of that attachment. As long as you perceive yourself as a person or personality and, and make that assumption in any way whatsoever, you'll end up with doubt. There'll always be a wavering state or uncertainty or a sense of division or despair from that. Once you, once there's path knowledge, then you to see that path is very is very you know exactly what to do. What it is. And then you pursue that. You, that's the way one practices in the, say, the third noble truth of Niroda Satya. The, uh, the um, realization of cessation, then the eightfold path arises. The power, now the development of that path, then that is, uh, say, it's always in the here and now, mindful, uh, aware, the already, say the. The, the factors are, are, are the, uh, the, the, the eightfold is quite, let's say for monks and nuns, isn't it? It's quite uh, already quite developed, say in the sila and the Gamanto, Samma Achivo. Now you realise how rare it is that human beings see this path. It's very rare indeed, from what I can tell. So spending the past three nights in London. (laughs) How many million people in London? <laughs> now we each have our own Particular characters, which, uh, which is not personality, it's just the karma, really, uh, heredity, and and tendencies and sort of inclinations, so that they the, we we still certainly come across in the same way as a person in the world they but this is not to be uh, regarded as anything other than, than just the, the way things appear. I mean, you can't tell you know, who's enlightened because, uh, on the way, you know, we still look like the same people. I mean, it's very silly for people going around trying to judge and Decide who 's enlightened, I remember in Thailand people used to do that, and Westerners used to go to these different uh, teachers and <coughs> I remember in i i when i before I ordained in Bangkok, I used to avoid the Westerners like crazy because they always confused me i used to, I went to Wat Maha taught for a while, and then this Abhidhamma group I used to meet there. Insufferable group of <laughs> people. We're so opinionated, and uh, and I thought the last thing I want to do is to is to be like that. To just come here and become opinionated, already opinionated. <laughs> <laughs> and then went to other places, what be and so forth. And there are always so many opinions about who's enlightened, who isn't, who's the best teacher, who's the, uh, who's, who's attained, who who ha- isn't attained and so forth, and, and so I thought, well, I'm going to get out of this, I'm not going to, I'm going to run away from all the Westerners, so I did, because I didn't, I just found it terribly confusing to be, to have, to have to, you know, I thought, who am I to know who's who's enlightened and who isn't? And it seems a very, like, very conceited thing to, you know, for one to assume that I that I'm a I'm able to judge that. And then a lot of their criticisms were based on just external appearances, whether they smoked cigarettes or chewed betel nut or looked enlightened or whatever. I mean, just was uh, foolish. Uh, Arahants couldn't possibly smoke cigarettes according to some Westerners. I thought, I wonder what cigarettes Arahants would smoke. (laughs) 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 Paul Malls or what? or betel nut, and then that, another one. I thought that was, well, betel terrible, disgusting habit, but, but then uh, I re- began to, when when I went to, uh, what, my poem, it was Chow, I don't used to be an avid betel nut chewer. So I decided maybe I'd, I'd start, I tried to I tried to chew betel nut actually because I used to find it so disgusting. I thought, maybe I won't find it so terrible if I can do it myself. So one evening, I I chewed a whole lot of it and it has this kind of lime they put on these leaves. It burned my tongue. (laughs) Next morning, I couldn't taste anything at all. (laughs) But what you can know, isn't it? What can you know? Is it that you have a, that there's opinions, you have doubts, and you see you see somebody doing something that you don't know an enlightened person wouldn't do that. You can you can see that you have an opinion or you have a doubt or a view about it. That's that's the way to practice, not to to go around trying to figure out who is and who isn't. I think with the, the, the Buddhist a, approach to religious questions and its way of practice, it does give give one a very. I mean, it's very. You have to be very self motivated, actually, to do it, because <clears throat> it's not. It doesn't like this particular form doesn't rely a lot on like a guru or a, or a or inspiration not a, the, the, uh, the, the teaching itself even though it can be inspiring inspiration is not to be something that one is seeking all the time in the actual practice you're, you're observing you're not, you're not seeking inspiration you're not trying to get high or have things that keep, <coughs> keep lifting you up you have to develop that rising up within yourself that's why sometimes in, in meditation you really can sink down. If you if you're very dependent upon inspiration and, and somebody coming along kind of pushing you along, or, or ha- feeling, devotion and and all this, if if when that if that drops away, if you become disillusioned, you sink down, into the pits of hell. So that. If you, uh, when, when everything fails you, all your greatest efforts and all your idols fall off their pedestals and so forth, then you can really hit the almighty lows. Valleys of despair, morbidio inferiori and often many many of you have to sink to that level to get to the very to into the pits before you you have even a clue of rising up again before you ever get the idea that you can do it yeah. so even though the religious path, the the holy life is is a is, is a joyful one and a and, and, and is really quite simple. All the things that 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 are abstract are the things we produce, all our views, opinions, desires, fears, attachments. And so that until we see that and let them go, and that and but it still has to be done moment by moment rather than thinking you're just going to have a nice kind of uh catharsis get rid of everything and then then it's all just hunky-dory because there's always some rather challenging experiences even after 22 years in this uh, practicing like this, is I still find uh, challenging experiences. There's always some kind of possible intimidation, or some great urgent message, or some difficult scene, or some problem, or uh, now the even trivialities, silly things will will can bother you. Sometimes you find yourself with a little petty things kind of nattering away and, and then then the tendency to because they're trivial to to think oh I can't be bothered with that but now it's worth bothering with the whole lot is to note to, to see things for what they are with the with the trivialities as well as the the important challenges this is what really it's a way of faith or sada. the sadha uh, is it increases it becomes very powerful sense of total trust and faith that you're willing to to let go of even the most uh, kind of important things trusting that by letting go of them that that, that is, the, that is the, the way the path And of course, letting go doesn't mean getting rid, but it means not making any problems about the way things are. On this retreat, I've tried to kind of... not to make any problems about anything. Uh, We prepared ourselves from the very beginning, didn't we? Whatever happens during these two months is our practice whether there's this a continuous calm and tranquility serenity, and everybody becomes enlightened and 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 we just in this kind of uh, pleasant weather, just just uh, a mild January. Mild mental states, mildness, middle way, all the way, or it goes up and down all over the place. Siberian freezes, earthquakes, tornadoes, hurricanes, internal and external. (laughs) Not to make any problems about it. And that is, takes takes a lot of of faith, not to make problems about what happens. Mm. Especially for me, because I'm a great one to make problems out of things. I don't think I'm alone. I notice some of you are very good at it. So the... Maybe just it, a human foible. But we can make problems out of uh, what people say, what people do, misunderstandings. I think with wanting, wanting things to to go well, wanting. Uh, everybody to understand. As a teacher, being in this position of teacher and an abbot, I had to really learn how to to um, not make problems out of this kind of overwhelming uh, feeling of duty and obligation to try to be perfect and impeccable and to to never let anyone down and to, uh, to continue to kind of make everything right and, and get everything right and, and be perfect. So Though that, it wasn't a... It didn't seem selfish at first, it seemed rather noble wanting to be what everybody wants and what should be but then after a while saw that one began to see the suffering that came from that because inevitably somebody doesn't like you or has great doubts or disillusionments or or misunderstands something or whatever they realize that's, that's uh, alright not to make any problems to trust in, in the in the practice that one is doing. But it's not indifference either. It's not just kind of a fatalistic indifference. It doesn't matter or, or dismissal. But it's, it's a it's a sadar of faith, which is willing to bear with life and the way it moves and changes rather than to, to react to it, wanting to, to make it, wanting to control it, wanting to manipulate, wanting to change it. I remember thinking all the time in, in my experience as a bhikkhu the uh, mm. the idea of there was always this, this I remember in Thailand there was always this idea in my mind that that there'd be a, a kind of time sometime in the future where everything would be just right and so was. this was an, a, this was an unconscious assumption i was making there'd be a time when everything would come together and everything would be all right and so then uh, when when i was at Wat pa Pong, i was i was there for for about 6 7 months and then i decided that that it wasn't coming together the way i wanted so i uh, what I want to do is go off and be a kind of hermit monk so I went off got permission from Ajahn Cha, who was very sweet about the whole thing even took a whole group of bhikkhus down to the railway station in Morim saw me off on the train waved goodbye <laughs> <laughs> and I proceeded to find this ideal spot where everything would come together uh, Pupek Mountain in Sukulnakorn province so I went to this very remote place and uh, went up to Pupek Mountain where I during those six months I was on Pupek Mountain I I went through everything went wrong absolutely everything <laughs> I found I had, I didn't have to attend morning chanting, evening chanting, didn't have an Ajahn around to check me out on anything, well, I, I found out I was much, I found I was sleeping all the time, I just couldn't, couldn't motivate myself and try to force myself, to sit under my mosquito net, and, uh, and then there'd be just kind of a, kind of a, a dullness that would take over, and Then I became very sick. And they had to carry me down the mountain. The villagers had to come and actually carry me down the mountain. Got incredibly ill, and then they ran out of water and had hardly any water. And uh, I became one of. There were two monks with me. One monk. Was a was a senior monk, and uh, and I, I began to hate him. I began to feel a kind of even murderous tendencies arising. <laughs> Not that he really did anything wrong, just something in me. He something in me reacted to him, and it was it was I found incredible, and kind of aversion and hatred coming out. <coughs> So things didn't come together, even though I did have some pretty good insights during that time. still I thought sometime in the future things will come together. went back to Watpa Pong for the Martha, and then we we had to build a dining hall, and that when we finished the dining hall, then I can really practice so things will come together. When we finished the dining hall, then something else happened and it went on. The whole up to now. There's <laughs> <laughs> Just came back from London. <laughs> so that's the way the, the world is, isn't it? it? There's always these things to do, things that happen, illnesses, and all expectations and hopes of things coming together. The perfect monastery, when all the buildings are built. When the is in harmony, all the buildings are built, they have all the proper buildings, all the proper kuchis, good heating system, um, everything's, uh, the administration, administration structure is, is perfect, the relation to the English Sangha Trust, every all the wrinkles are ironed out, everything is neatly tied up, straightened out, folded, uh, recorded Uh, computerized, Uh, the is in harmony, Uh, there's no obstreperous Anagarikas or Anagarikas and everybody, (laughs) when everything's perfect, then everything will be perfect. And the weather, English weather changes to where it's perfect. This idea of a paradise, isn't it, where some will find a paradise? Well, I can really practice when I get to paradise. But this is this is, this assumption is is to be seen. We what we do is we learn from the way it is, from the way things are. That's what we contemplate the factors of enlightenment are not are not dependent upon everything being peaceful and calm and harmonious and pleasant and everything in order and everything neat and clean and and everything done but the ability to to learn from life as it happens with all its vicissitudes its changes No to even if you're thinking right now you still that you are someone with a personality view. That is a personality view, isn't it? That is a personality. <laughs> if you think right now that you are somebody that still is attached to personality view, that's a personality view. It's as immediate as that, that arises and ceases. So if you, if, you, if you assume that you are somebody who is still attached to a personality view, then you'll always be looking for the time when you as somebody doesn't have a personality view. It's a, it's name. It's a, one of those kind of cycles. It's a, what the things are. You can't. You just keep going around and around in it. But there's the knowing, isn't there? That, 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 that very doubt or, or assumption is just that. What arises ceases. Hmm. So you let go of it. You don't. You don't get rid of it. You don't try. If, that, if you are if someone that's trying to get rid of your personality views, then you become some a personality who is trying to get rid of having a personality. Become the annihilator. take on a new role, like one of these comic books. The Annihilators. But what you can know, what is that the knowing, is that if that, that very movement of the mind that I, the, the, the thoughts of I am. So if it, it's, if you're going to think you, you, or assume that you are a person or that you still have personality view, then, then really deliberately think that. I am a person with a strong per- attachment to, per- to my personality. Deliberately think it. So then you, you're looking at it, not as an affirmation, but as Dhamma. It arises, it ceases. don't be afraid don't be don't be caught in that kind of furtiveness and hesitation that go on with, with trying to be perfect and because you understand the theory you're always trying to kind of make yourself into what you think i want you to be or what you feel you should be what you think that it, that that everyone else is but to just note that to notice the desire to become, desire to get rid of, as just what it is. It's that way. Then the Sada is uh, trusting in, in just the, being in, the, in, the, in that knowing, in reflecting <clears throat> on it, seeing it, knowing it. Letting go of things, not making any problems, not creating any situations. That's why on a retreat, or say in our life, as seminars, the whole structure is is a kind of uh, way of life which we which we all agree to. So then there's no we we just we just live like this. The bhikkhus live like this with their padi the dasa, stila dars with their rules and anagarikas and so forth. This is just like this. This is not personal. This is not a personality. This is not, this is not anything to be attached to, but to, to surrender to in order to be able to see and know things as they are. For example, if bhikkhus think, bhikkhus should think, I have 227 rules and I keep, so I'm better than the Dasa Siladharas. Now what would the Dasa Siladharas think? If they heard that. And they, the bhikkhus think they're better than us. And then the Dasa Siladharas they, male chauvinism in the Sangha. The monks think they're better than women. We want as many rules as the monks. If they have 227, we want 227, so we can be just as good as they are. Then the monks say, no way, baby. (laughs) This is an ancient tradition. Now <laughs> so when we have a a group of people that all have views and opinions, there's nothing, there's only, There can only be an endless kind of debate and conflict going on uh, what's the point of that except it, it becomes meaningless and, and silly because the whole purpose of it is not not to to uh, be attached to these things but to to live in a way that we we don't we can let go of it That's why in the training to, like for the, say, the Padimokha discipline, to really learn that that structure, that way, the way that we do it here. And so that you don't have to think about it. It's just the way things are done. You don't have to, not to make a problem about morality or restraint or to to be attached to it, to feel that to to think that you're better than someone else who doesn't have it or to um, or to have any opinions about it but just to learn how to to live in this style in this way without thinking about it without making any problems about it the Dasa idea is to live in this way without making any problems about it then we can see the problems we do make, can't we? You can see the mind being discontented, not wanting this, not wanting to be bothered with these rules. Like a lot of the rules, we can, we can, we feel are, one can feel are trivial or unnecessary. And then we can Become, make problems about that the thing is not make any problems about them this is, this is the style this is the way of the bhikkhu this is, this is the, the dance steps that we learn this is the form this is the the, the movement and uh, once you learn to, to do it that way there's nothing is very simple. And one can really see that what one adds to life, the problems one creates create about rules. What'll I do if my mother falls into the river? We're sitting here. My mother's not here. She's not she's never fallen in a river yet in my life that I remember. It's never really been a problem that I've had to face ever. And yet I have this rule, not supposed to touch women. And my, what will I do if my mother falls into the river? Can I break that rule to go in and get my mother out of the river Or should I disrobe first? (laughs) (laughs) The advice is take off your robe and throw it in and let her kind of grab a corner of it and pull her in. But sometimes it's not always uh, easy to do that, is it? Especially my mother's 86 years old. (laughs) So I've made a problem, haven't I? a problem about what would happen if my mother fell into the river? What would happen if if uh, I could make all kinds of problems about these rules? What'll I do if? What'll I what should a bhikkhu do if this happens or that happens? This is that you can see the tendency to, to take the discipline and make a problem about it. Mm then you've missed the point you're creating these are precepts or guidelines for behavior so it's a way of training a way of of development a style a way that is agreed upon in which it's all based on moral uh, uh, obligations and restraint, but it does not to make you stupid or heartless or insensitive or, or hesitant or in, unable to cope with life. If if if, you're, if there's still a wrong view and a sense of self-involvement in it, then it becomes clumsy and difficult and onerous for us. But as soon as the self drops away, and there's satya and trust then one knows what to do there's no problems we make no problems about life the responses are appropriate to the time and the place and there's a trust and confidence that comes from that it's not, doesn't, it doesn't make you hesitant, anxious, worried upset, frightened of, of anything new unable to cope with different situations. The, the, the path then is a very immediate one. It's always the, the, say they're in this retreat just to be really reflective on the way things are. To so you, you have the the, the body the you reflect on the body on the feeling on the jitta the the way the mood, where way your mind is feeling, on the Dhamma, the four foundations of mindfulness, we reflect, we contemplate until we really see, we know there's the knowing. The more you kind of mull over, chew something over, over and over again, then may you understand it. There's the, the knowing, the understanding come from what, whatever bothering you, whatever is, is uh, particularly uh, working in your mind, obsessing your mind, or rising up. That's something to work with. Whether it be dullness, or, or, or boredom, or fear, or worry, doubt, greed, anger, More well, you contemplate and reflect on these things as they are, seeing them. What do they feel like? What is, what is the mind like? What is it? Do you, when, when there's anger in your, when you when you feel anger, what is, what do you feel like? What is it like? We we contemplate it. We reflect on this anger. When it's gone, what is it like? When it's present, what, it is, what is it like? is like when there's no anger, when there is anger. When there's greed, when there's no greed. When there's delusion, and when there's no delusion. There's the knowing, isn't it? To know there's no delusion, or there is delusion, is knowing. The mind's empty and clear, knowing the emptiness. The mind is tight and obsessed and anxious to know that the knowing of that as it is not judging it is it not, not analyzing it just knowing so in order to, to do that to be patient with the way things are in order to know them if there's impatience then if the impatience always implies implies that we, we, don't want th- we don't want it to be this way. We want something else. And that's what impatience is. I don't want this, or I want something else. The next thing. So we, we're more, we, we determine to accept the way it is, even if it's an unpleasant, unwanted condition. So in the real sangha then there are, there's nobody who's a bhikkhu nobody's a sila, dasa siladhara nobody's an anagarika nobody's an anagarika and nobody's an upataka There's only things as they are there's nobody. there's no person these are just the the conventions the conditions that are present but it's not personal anymore who's a Dasa Stila Dara? well I was ordained by the venerable Sumatera <laughs> There's Dasa theory of our conventions, the bhikkhu conventions, but the and the personalities are let go. There's no persons, but the conventions are still here, and they manifest like this, and the, it still it still looks like people in robes, and and uh, looks just like any other kind of worldly situation. But the difference lies in the knowing and the seeing through the illusion of it, not, not believing in the appearance anymore, not stopping it and, 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 being, and reacting to the appearance, but transcending it. So there's no problems. Since there's nobody to make problems, there's no problems. And as soon as somebody is born, then there are problems, aren't there? Somebody is born as a, I'm a Dasasita I'm a Bhikkhu. And then the problems arise. Now this is very difficult I imagine for you to understand <laughs> uh, and it might seem pretty bleak because one thing we, we think of is how you know interesting it is to be a, a person or have some kind of, kind of individual charm and personality plus, some class, style. Oh, this would be a kind of nothing, no, no personality, just a, a kind of cipher, a convention only. <laughs> but this is all about the, the these things, the externals, the 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 conventions of the sensory experience, the sensory realm. And the the knowing is at the very center, the very still point, awareness. And if we if we if we refuse to be uh, to be mindful, if we are determined to be ignorant and heedless, then we're going to have just endless problems. We create problems. We come and go as people. We get jealous. We fight, we have factions, we split up, we separate, we create endless difficulties, worries, endless worries, all kinds of things to worry about, possibilities of failures and misunderstandings and scandals in the future, and uh, on and on like that, because of this, of being caught up into the conventional realm and the sensory conditions. but we can also begin to appreciate and, and and enjoy the peacefulness and the good company of nobody of not needing people to, not needing to be a person anymore and trying to get reactions from others for, for conceit or prideful reasons not being possessive or demanding or Or attached, or jealous, or averse, or frightened—all these can fall away. To where there is a sense of joy and peace, serenity, a love, rather than these passions that rip us apart and and destroy and, and torture us. So, saying that the the, the mind of, of calm when there's calm when there's mindfulness and calm then there is no suffering and the, the vicissitudes are as they are they're, they're just the way things are warm today cold tomorrow Hurricane, tornado, cyclone, earthquake. Hot summer, wet summer, cold summer. The polar ice cap melts, the ozone disappears. Or, maybe everything gets better and better by the year 2000, the golden age of Aquarius. Just to reflect on the, again, on the the way things are as a human being, the result of birth in the human form means that there's this seemingly there's this feeling of separateness due to consciousness within the the limitations, the karmic limits of our own bodies. <clears throat> so for each one of us, say, we, we have to see and view from this particular position, and we're like right now I'm sitting right here, I can't sit exactly where Anagarika Bill is or go and sit and enter into Sister Kalyana's mind. I have to see things from this angle, this position. And because of that, is one, one, the appearance is of, of separation. Somehow Sister Kalyana's way over there in the corner, Bill's here in front. But there's still, no matter how far away or close, there's this... Sense of division and separation. This is consciousness. This is what consciousness is. Consciousness is, is the discriminative function of the mind. And it's and it always, it, uh, if we are attached to consciousness as our identity, then there's always this sense of alienation, separation. Because I, if I am this body and this consciousness, then how can I ever be one with anything? You know, one tries to maybe say romantic uh, uh, views of finding someone to have a, a union with or a communion, a oneness. And there's a longing in all of us, in all human beings, for some kind of union or communion or unity. Mm. Now that is a totally impossible thing to have on the level that most people seek it. Through, through consciousness, through the discriminative function of mind, all you end up with is feeling more alienated and isolated. Mm. Because even though momentarily say uh union you know, there's a maybe a sense of oneness or union uh, in moments, physical union or or emotional unity, there's also because that which go, comes together must separate this inexorable law, then there's always, there's always a sense of loss. If, if one is attached to the idea of a union or a unity or communion, and then when it actually one feels a, a moment of it, it conditions the sense of alienation. And so sometimes the more we seek union and communion and friendship and, and oneness with, with things through that desire, we feel even more alienated and lonely than, than ever. This I noticed from my own life's experiences. The more I began to just feel so lonely and yet surrounded by friends and, and uh, all kinds of, say, situations that, that uh, wasn't a wasn't iso- physical isolation or even an emotional one. It was an existential problem of ignorance of being caught up in the illusions of separation through the identity with consciousness. and No one had never even thought of questioning that. This is the real world, isn't it? The real world is is like this. You're supposed to believe in the illusions of a real world, that your society, your family, your class, your nation, your group, Believe in now during this retreat, you have this whole wonderful opportunity to investigate <clears throat> so teaching like the teacher some Sam, Samupada, who which of course a very skillful kind of tool to and to see what 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 is the real problem is there any real separation or is it merely an appearance of separation and the attachment from through desire to the five khandhas, of course only increases a, and and uh, increases that sense of separation that ignorance that avijja <clears throat> one can be sitting in a room full of people and feel totally alone I think one of the loneliest experiences of my life was in New York City when I was about 24 I went to New York City to live I never felt so lonely in my life as surrounded by millions of people So many people, and yet so lonely. Where was the loneliness? It was the longing, the sense, the, the attachment, the the uh, belief in the, in the in the in the quote real world, unquote, as and somehow not feeling that one was had not kind of entered into into the real world in in the same way that others had didn't realize that everyone else had the same problem, actually. I used to think it was a kind of personal uh, flaw in my character, kind of unique, uh, law that I was somehow a misfit and everyone else fit in and I was the only one that didn't. Only to learn that most people felt like they were misfits. So that this, this, this uh, sensory world is, is, it doesn't fit us, really. It's a, it's a kind of uh, passage that we're involved in. Passing through the samsara to learn a lesson, hopefully we'll learn it. <laughs> that we don't fit into these roles, we're not, we're not really people. You're not really women. No, you're not really men. Not even nuns or monks or anything like that. These are like costumes or temporary things that we have to learn how to to live with, to accept as they are. Learn how to to uh, accept them to know them to learn from this limitation this this suffering that comes from ignorance, this sense of alienation now it probably starts the day you're born, isn't it and the time you're kind of thrown out into the world. Uh, from what I know, that birth implies a sense of. Uh, I mean, babies usually cry when they're born, don't they? They don't come out laughing. <laughs> I've never heard of one doing that. Because it is, it's uh, being thrown out into something, into the unknown, as a separate being. Because once the umbilical cord is cut, you're separate. Where before you weren't. You were one with your mother. One being with your mother. Mm. And then the umbilical cord, when that is cut, that is the end of that relationship. (laughs) You're then a separate being, physically separated. So that must be very traumatic for every baby to be, uh, I think uh, so many, you see so many people longing to get back into that relationship again, to find a mother, to nurse and take care of us and look after us and protect us and keep us warm, nurture us, and all that. It's a, you know, I've seen that in myself, kind of wanting some nice nice womb to crawl into, some safe place where I'll be protected. Say, I love you, dear, forever, no matter what you do. And everything's going to be all right. And there's going to be plenty of everything, warmth and food and comfort forevermore. Like the Jehovah's Witnesses' paradise. Consciousness also implies this uh, ability to, because we, the, the, since there's consciousness there's this Vedana. There's the, uh, in this divi- divisive, divided sensory experience, there's the Vedana of the attraction, repulsion, and neutrality of that we experience through the senses, through sensory consciousness, isn't it? We see what is attractive or or ugly or neutral. We hear beautiful sound or or horrible sounds or neutral. And we can smell lovely fragrances or, or stenches or neutral odors, taste. Pleasant or unpleasant flavors or neutral. Feel, ple- pleasurable or unpleasant sensations on the body, heat and cold and neutral. And the attractive, uh, the, the Vedana then, is the, what is attractive and repulsive. What is pleasurable and painful, what is desirable or undesirable. And when we see, if we're, since we're conscious, and because until there is enlightenment or seen clearly, awakeness and wisdom, then we tend to just react to the Vedana with desire, which is the beautiful things, the pleasurable things, the, the, uh, the, the, the positive side we incline to, because it is attractive. Its, its function is to attract. And then the ugly, painful side we, we we try to get rid of, run away from, and then there's this whole range of neutrality which usually goes on uh usually never reaches consciousness is is unnoticed and we unless you write poetry or or do something uh, to kind of be more mindful, paint or Landscapes or something you don't really notice. So most of what usually you're 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 so caught in the more extreme uh, reactions to the attractiveness and repulsiveness of sense experience. Then with mindfulness, if you if you have like art and so what so sometimes if it's, if it's uh, if it's not just for some kind of egotistical. <coughs> Uh, fulfillment, uh, art itself offers us an ability to kind of contemplate and to relate to, say, maybe that which is between the extreme attractive or repulsive poles. Because in art and poetry one often uh, depends on that for that kind of awareness. Usually in in, uh, much of writing it's about the extremes, isn't it? if you go to the the movies, they have to usually make everything very melodramatic exciting, a lot of violence sex, and so forth to make it all because that's what people tend to 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 absorb into easily into the extremes. I remember years ago there was this 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 trilogy of films called uh, it was from India. This was back in the 50s, I think. Must have been in the 50s. Anyway, they were... they were. Uh, they, they, this trilogy was a flop in India. The Indians couldn't stand it. But it was a great hit among the kind of uh, avant-garde in America. And so... The, as a trilogy, it, was, it took about six to eight hours to sit through the, all the three films, and they were the most. The, the, and it was about uh, Indian life, uh, uh, and it traced from a, from a child, a, 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 an Indian boy, to through adulthood. And his and his last one was about his kind of religious or spiritual search. Well, they, these films tended to be a bit boring and because of the fact that most of Indian life is really quite boring. Mm-hmm. And they they emphasize the rather the uh, the the daily life of India. Even though they did have dramatic moments, so much of these it was in these three films was really quite monotonous, routine, uh, not the kind of swashbuckling Type of uh, Indian films with dancing girls and everybody breaking out into song and dances, <laughs> hoochie coochie and all that. <laughs> this was just about the the, the life in an in Indian uh, in in a village and then in in, in Calcutta. Now, obviously, most people would find the, that boring. you I imagine in India people wouldn't like to go and just see what they're <laughs> experiencing <laughs> in daily life. They go to the cinema in order to see the dancing girls and the violence and shooting and fighting and all that. But then as you as you kind of uh, more aware of things, and they kind of more gross and coarser extremes become less and less compelling and one one begins to see more the subtleties within the neutral or the ordinary. Now the pull of gravity and the can, and having a, an instinctual nature like the animals, we have a very strong pull into that realm. And we're, we're not like the devadas who don't have animals' bodies. They have ethereal bodies. They're ethereal, the devadas. That's why we can't see them because we've got these, these, uh, these animal-type bodies which are uh, planetary, four-element type of things which which are um a bit coarse really and they they um they have strong instincts that sometimes we're very much embarrassed by because the more polite and civilized you get the more you try to appear like the deva does, don't you so that you you have the this ethereal appearance and yet so much of our life is really having to cope with an animal's body and instincts. So when you, when one is appealing to masses of human beings, one what is, it tends to be the easiest thing to understand, and the most absorbing are the say the lower elements: you know, violence, sex survival, instinctual functions of, of the animal world are quite compelling to the human beings also. And if you want to turn on masses of people, you have to appeal to that level, to the lower chakras, as they say. As you go up to the higher ones, then the it separates the 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 gross from the subtle. The, you lose people on the way because so <laughs> <too> many <laughs> prefer to stay in the lower realm <laughs> so you do have culture and refinement uh beauty and and the sensory realm, and appreciating the more of the celestial and ethereal planes of me- of mental creativity but we also must learn how to touch the earth and accept the instinctual nature and the four elements and planetary life as it is so that meditation isn't isn't a, a cop out isn't an escape from the from the instinctual world or the planetary or, of course, planetary life, but an opening up to it rather than just the reactions, either through indulging in it or suppressing it. Painting this picture just for... For a, ref- a, a, a kind of a reflection for yourselves to see this is what it is to be human, what this involves because it, we, we have to be fully human too we're not trying to avoid or get out of it we're not trying to become Devadas and they become devas we're not trying to, to to deny the animal functions or instincts or reject them, or, or suppress them, or identify with them either as, as me or mine. We can reflect, we can note, we can, we can accept them for what they are, for exactly what they are, rather than for what we believe them to be. With the intelligence and the, and the creativity of the human mind, we can appreciate that without being attached to it. The, the whole problem then lies in this ignorance and then the attachment that comes from that ignorance to the what we call the five khandhas. This ubadana, in other words, is really the, the crux of the matter. Is to really see what attachment is. Attachment. Another word I often use is identi- Identification is, is attachment, isn't it? Identification. I am <laughs> this this person, this personality. I am this this body. This is me. I am this way. I am. Uh, I am, and this is this is mine. I should be. I shouldn't be. And then because there's I am and me, then there's you. Because on this level, on consciousness, there's a separation. So there's there's Bill and Robert. We're separate, aren't we? I'm here, you're there. Attachment then is, is not in, uh, we can call this the conventional reality, and then it's no longer an attachment because we, we're merely using it as a, as a, for communication, and for practical reasons. It's no longer coming out of ignorance. But for most human beings, it's, it's still an ignorant view. I'm here, you're there. This is the real world for most people. The, the that 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 separation is the real world look after yourself you have to take care of yourself first i have to protect myself i only have one life i've got to see that i get everything i can out of it parents say now boy, you've got to be careful, you know, And you're, you're not getting any younger, you've got to make sure that you have your pension, your social security, your insurance, your hospital and medical uh, insurance, and uh, this is what my parents were after me about when I was young, As you know, you, you've got to be practical about life. You've got to make sure that when you get old, you've got everything kind of tied up in all kinds of pensions and, and um, whatnot, insurance policies. Don't want to be a burden on anyone, that's the English thing. I don't want to be a burden on anyone. When I get old, I don't want to be a burden on it I'm, because old people are burdens in this country, aren't they? It, everybody looks upon the old as burdensome, and the old look upon themselves as burdensome, because of identity. So there are three million lonely French women Try not to be burdens on anyone, or maybe french don 't mind me <laughs> but here in England, there's very much the english characters i don 't want to be a burden now contemplating this we we can we can uh, observe this whole this all that we create out of these illusions. I don't want to be a burden, I should I shouldn't, I would like to be, you should be, you shouldn't be, you ought or you ought not to and on and on in this fashion. We have all kinds of views, opinions, identifications, preferences, attachments of all kinds that we call the real world. That we believe in as reality, and so we find if you read, pick up a London newspaper, um, you'll find all about the real world, about all the pro- financial problems in and in the business world, and about the economic problems of the, of Britain and the United States and the and the problems of the Soviet Union and problems of the third world countries, problems of individuals, who's divorcing who, who's having an affair with who, who's being a burden, who's not being a burden, (laughs) and all kinds of advice about what you should and shouldn't be. The real world, encapsulated in a few kind of uh, sheets of paper with photographs. Now, that real world is a poverty-stricken world, isn't it? It's it's meaningless. If one believes in that and attaches to it, then life is a very depressing, increasingly depressing experience because the world of separation, alienation and division is, is, is a world of despair. It's anguishing. It's dukkha. It's suffering. It's misery. It's sad. And you can see in so much of the kind of of uh, people uh the in in love songs in pop songs and all that so much about the sadness of this wanting and hoping for the one of these unions and they end up in separations I think one one thing that popular music does convey is sadness, not particularly joyful for most of it is is has is very sad. A sense of anguish seems to haunt the human condition. Now to be fully human is to be what? Because as as, uh, as samanas we're not trying to, to get out of our humanity but to understand it. And so to be fully human, to be fully human is to be moral, to be moral, to, to have the sila. You can't say you're fully human unless you keep the, at least the five moral precepts. Or you're only human some of the time. The, the preset, or the sense of moral integrity and moral responsibility, willingness to be responsible for one's actions and one's speech. Say that, is, that is not instinctual, is it? That's not an instinct that you have to rise up to. Instincts don't care about speech and action. In an instinctual nature, if if it's uh, if it's in your way, you just kick it out of the way, kill it. The animal kingdom doesn't uh, have very much to say, do they? The animal world doesn't seem to have developed uh, highly complicated speech patterns like the humans, but they certainly. Uh, it's certainly survival of the fittest in the animal kingdom because there's a, there's, not, there's not the ability to say rise up to a moral commitment to be responsible on the moral plane this is a human opportunity is morality so in Buddhist terms it's only when we when we rise to that moral plane that we can say we're fully human. And in Thailand they they regard that very very strongly that you're not really human till you till you till you're moral. Even though you look like a human being you're not really. Because the human 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 realm is a moral realm. And this is where, say in, the, say, in the Sangha, then, the emphasis on morality is is so strong. So that this, this sense of this, this fulfillment of our humanity, not a rejection of it. Now, this is for contemplation, of course. I mean this is reflecting for you. But this is, I'm not trying to tell you what you should do or anything, more or less reflecting. For for you, thinking out loud. Ways of looking at, things like what what is what is a human being. I'm not saying well, venerable Sumedha says. Or Buddhists believe in, but this this isn't to give you information that you have to attach to, but it is a just a reflection for you to consider. Living within a Buddhist country, of course, it it uh, the Buddhist values permeate the culture, like in Thailand, so that one one begins to start looking at things in in a different way. Like I remember years ago when I was in when I lived in Nong Khai as a samanera, and they at that time Laos was uh, wasn't a communist country. And during while I was there, a general from the south of uh, of uh, of Laos bombed Vientiane, the royal. And it was the same. It was it wasn't the communist bombing. It was it was the Royal Lao Air Force general went up and dropped some bombs on Vientiane because of some kind of problems or misunderstandings or whatever. <laughs> So I thought that's a terrible thing to have done and I was quite indignant and I remember one of the monks that I was talking to, I was going on in this very indignant way that was terrible that they did that, and the monk said, but that's the way the world is isn't it, that's what happens in the world and, just, and left me with that and I thought he's just passing it off that shouldn't happen and then suddenly uh, just by his kind of putting it in a slightly different angle I began to yes those things happen all the time don't they Why, why should I get so upset and angry over something like that when it happens all the time somebody's always getting jealous and dropping bombs on somebody else or you know these Birmingham murders, they revived these, these, uh, these uh, men that were convicted of the Birmingham uh, in 1974 when the IRA blew up two pubs in Birmingham. And of course people, they get very upset by the fact of innocent people being, being maimed for life. That people being, many people were maimed for life, were killed in this horrible terrorist activity. It's not fair. It's not right. Terrible. But yet, when you look back, you think it happens all the time throughout the history of of not quite humanity. Was reading a book about the Cathars, who were a Christian Gnostic group, lived in the in the Languedoc area, southern France, or Spanish borders, and they. And in I think in about 900 years ago or so, the Roman Catholic Church went in and sent soldiers in and killed killed them all off. They they recorded 60,000 Cathars were murdered in Toulouse in one day, and they didn't have machine guns. That takes a lot of, you know, imagine killing all 60,000 people with what, probably swords. Over what? because the cathars didn't quite believe in the same things they didn't believe that Jesus's body physically floated up into heaven and of course they were they were also an economic threat and i think many threatened many other ways but the grounds were on religious grounds these were heretics and then just just in the um, in just recently in just what happens in, in wars around the world or in Vietnam and during the Vietnam War. One sees just an endless procession of murders and violence done in the name of God or nation, righteousness, protection of the of the of the family, protection of the country. Always these the so much of the violence and murders and horrors are done in in the, in the name of something noble, kill off the heretics, kill the communists, and this is all from the hum- not quite humans, isn't it? This is the non-humans doing all this, because to be human, as I've said before, you have to, you have to be moral. You have to take on that moral position. And of course, you know the first moral precept I hope by now. To refrain from intentionally taking the life of especially human beings. And that also doesn't mean that if you call somebody non human that you can kill them. Then you're in the same position as the Roman Catholic Church, killing off the heretics. But banadibata is actually applied, say, for us to all, to all beings. And that is the the beginning of humanity, because we can we can choose to do this. Is something that is not. Instinct doesn't, doesn't choose to do this, does it? Our instincts would, if somebody's being a threat or a bother, to get rid of them as quickly as possible. But the human side says, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Or would I like to be treated like that? Is that fair? Is that right? Is that just? Is that proper? Is that is that a moral thing? So we we can question, can't we? We can contemplate: is the killing of of another human being is it justified in any way? Is there we can justify it if if we want? We I mean they're heretics or they're communists or something like that, but. But in the, in the Buddhist sense that's not, a, that's not even like uh, heretics, communists are not to be killed. Not, it's not for us to decide who's going to, who's going to live and who isn't. We think they have as much right to be here and live and breathe and live on this planet as, as I do. Now this is a human reflection it's not an instinctual one. My instincts say, kill the mosquitoes. They're a nuisance. They they give malaria. They give you malaria. They they if God had any you know if, if God really loved us he would never have created mosquitoes. That's what I used to think. I don't believe in God anymore because if there was a God he would never have created mosquitoes. <laughs> or midges, up there in the Pennines when you're trying to crawl into your tent before the midges get you. <laughs> if there was a god, he wouldn't have created those things. So that proves there isn't any god. But then the human side says, but they have as much right to be here as I do. These blasted midges. <laughs> what, who am I to think that I somehow am more important or I have more right to be in, to breathe and to live my life than they do? This is a, re, this is a human reflection, isn't it? My instincts say, spray them, get rid of them. <laughs> Quickly. quick as possible, because they're in the way, they're a nuisance, they're they're not nice. They don't belong here. We don't want them. But the human would say that the Banadibata side comes up and says, Yes, but they they have as much right to be here as I do. So then from that position I'm somehow a little kinder aren't I I'm I'm not so quick to just destroy that which I don't like or which bothers me or is a nuisance I'm much more willing to give it a chance to try to understand it to respect it for what it is even though I may never like it I don't think one ever I can't imagine myself ever liking midges they're just not likable are they to humans does anyone here like them If you do, you're not human. (laughs) But one can accept them for what they are. Because when you contemplate the amount of of irritation and uh, then it's not all that much. One can put up with that. It's not that they're really that much of a bother. We can make them into a terrible problem. We can create all kinds of anxieties and aversions around it, around that perception. But actually, it, they're all right. One can bear it. It's just the way it, things are. They want, they, their lives are as important to them as my life is to me. So then, that that is rising up to this plane of, hu- of humanity, because I'm sure the midge doesn't reflect like that. I'm sure the midge has said, "Well, there's the venerable tomato. He keeps the moral precepts. Let's not bite him." <laughs> they don't, They can't very well. Can't because they they are not human. They can't. They can't rise up to the human plane. But we can sink down to theirs very quickly. They're just uh, living an instinctual life, just reacting to the pleasure and pain of the sensory realm and to, to the, the ha- habit tendencies, instinctual tendencies of these bodies and their survival mechanisms and all of that. Now, in what we 're doing here, this is even rising up beyond us just the human existence towards the towards the refuges in Buddha dhamma sangha towards the spiritual, toward the transcendent, the deathless Nibbana, and so that that human foundation is necessary. We have to be fully human before we can expect to get beyond that to transcend it. We have to, to really uh, accept the instinctual plane for what it is but no longer condemn it or identify with it. Respect it for what it is like we respect the the, the midges and the mosquitoes and the, all the other beings. We're not, we're not judging nor exalting it. It is what it is. It's like this. Then on the human plane, we refrain from doing evil, intentionally doing cruel, unkind, selfish, mean, things or, or using our ability to speak for harming others, for deceit, for, for lying, for, for cursing or swearing, then from that human plane we can aspire to the transcendent, deathless realm, amrabhati. And even though these these conditions are still death bound, isn't it? all these bodies will die when the times for, when it, it's the time for them to go, they they die. That's their nature. So the human realm is not uh, not an end in itself. Mm. It's not we're not really humans. In other words, this, the human experience has to be. We have to learn from it, mm-hmm. know it. Rise up to it, understand it, but not, no longer attach, or identify with it, because humanity is not what we are. We're not really humans either. But paradoxically, we have to be fully human in order to realize we're not human. It's like with the instincts, you have to with, uh, from the human plane, you can contemplate the instinctual plane. When you're caught in the instinctual plane, you can't very well contemplate it because you're, you're operating within its limit. You're not, you haven't transcended it. So you, you're just caught into that level of activity and reaction and going to the human plane, then one can be very much aware of the instinctual one for what it is and then to the transcendent, the buddhic plane, to understand the huma- human one. So much of our meditation is on reflections of our own human limitations, of the human limitations and what they really are. That's why morality is such an important part of our training. Renunciation, uh, fewness of, of need, reflections, say, in, in monastic life are all the, the very important kind of equipment, tools, for contemplating what it is to be human and what is necessary for human survival. What do we really need rather than what do we want? What is necessary for survival, for instinctual survival? What is necessary for living in the society the human society in the right way how to how to be perfect human beings for the welfare of the society we're in as examples as as living examples for the society to see the 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 beauty of humanity or the gentleness the kindness the the uh, proper, the the propriety of it, the wisdom of of the human realm. But then then our form is definitely not just pointing to the human realm, but beyond it. In Refugees, then, in Buddha Dhammasanga, this is this uh, say in, in, as the convention that I found most conducive towards. Uh, uh, we need conventions uh, to, in order to, to just uh, kind of bring into into our minds the way things are for reflection, and a common language that we speak, the agreed terms, we agree on the terms, we're all Buddhists now, not because uh, we believe in Buddhism, but because we agree (coughs) to use Buddhist language, Buddhist concepts, Buddhist conventions, so that we can speak the same language. We can't very well carry on a conversation. If you're speaking Chinese, I'm speaking Swahili, and somebody else is speaking Ubangi. We might be able to show off our linguistic abilities in front of each other, but it would be very impossible to to say, please pass the salt, (laughs) especially if you didn't understand Ubangi. (laughs) <laughs> but we can't say that Ubangi isn't a good language I don't know anything about it actually <laughs> but, but we have to agree to speak the same language in order to say pass the salt and and get it mm. so in in this the say here in this monastery the aim is to is to try to to uh, bring into your minds the, the way to use, uh, skillfully use these conventions, not to convert you to Buddhists per se, and, and as as opposed to Christians or Muslims or anything like that. That's not the point. Not to to divide everything up in and uh, with sectarian views, but just learning how to to develop and use something. So that we, we, we can convey to each other, help each other, support each other, uh, and, and are able to, to communicate properly with each other. because say in saying this, the Buddha did decide, after his enlightenment to teach. At first, he thought, "I won't bother. Too subtle, too difficult. Nobody will understand the first. Because it is, isn't it? When you're trying to just talk about the religious experience, mm-hmm. is is a, is not an easy thing to do. Not to point to it, or to 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 get, try to say uh, convey a message, an understandable message, or symbol to somebody else. Mm -hmm. When I went with uh, the Venerable Vipassi, we went to the Russian Orthodox Church with Sister Mary that afternoon and with uh, Metropolitan Anthony Bloom was there, listening to his talks in, in that particular style of Christian devotion, and then, then they had these kind of horrendous uh, teas in this tiny little room, where you kind of smashed in, everybody drinking, standing up, and uh, people trying to talk to you. Many people at one time trying to talk to you at one time so. about. Religion and so forth. You can see I mean, not only was the situation not very conducive towards clear communication, but also the language was very different. And I think people uh, ask why we're Buddhists or what do Buddhists believe in, or those things, and mind goes blank. What do Buddhists believe in? <laughs> 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 And then, also, many of, the, of them obviously had already kind of views about what Buddhists believed in, or that they didn't believe in anything, or whatever. So, it does get and that's why I find some of these interfaith meetings a real trial. Because it's so you realize what the problem really is. Nobody really. There's, there's, it's Yubangi it's, uh, Swahili <laughs> Chinese going on and all the best you can do is smile and be a nice guy for everyone they all oh, Buddhist monks smile a lot and they're nice guys well, that's, that helps I mean at least it gives a good impression that one doesn't really want to spend one's life just doing that So our our use of these terms, like with the Four Noble Truths, the Paticha Samuppada, and and these Dhamma teachings, is why emphasising the the not just the intellectual kind of learning, the surface, the superficial teaching, but the taking the teaching and applying it. Because these teachings are about the mind, about the way things are. They're Dhamma teachings. They're not they're not intellectual theories so when we talk about ubadana or attachment not a theory that people are attached it's to observe what is attachment what is dana what is what is desire and attachment becoming ignorant What is ignorant? What is abhicha? Consciousness. What is consciousness? And I think all of us are beginning to clarify these terms so that we—they aren't just kind of vague or kind of Christianized or Westernized uh, versions of Buddhism. But we're, we're trying to get to the to the. Uh, to what the actual way they're meant to be used—it's a quite a precise language, very, pr- very skillful teaching. Not, not where well, If you define them too easily with with Western uh, definitions and or just assumptions one makes because you underst- you think you understand the word because it's an English word. Sometimes we don't understand because. We, we haven't really looked that closely even at our own language. Or we have all kinds of assumptions that we make. So as you develop in this way, then, then your ability to communicate becomes more, uh, you become more capable of conveying, of, of, of talking, of, of, of communicating the religious experience the way, the path the, the way out of suffering in, these, in this particular style and form and I found it very helpful just to be able to contemplate what it is to be a human being to be conscious what is, what is it that in this lifetime what is it to be born and the aging process all the things that are affecting each one of us are contemplated. None of it is dismissed or rejected. The instinctual realm, the realm of survival, procreation, the, the emotional realm, the intellectual realm, the ability to feel and to, to love and to hate and, to, and so forth, all these are dhammas for us to reflect on and understand. Sometimes Buddhism comes across to many people as a kind of rejection of the world. You, you leave the world and you sit under a, a tree and you contemplate your breath and you don't care what happens. Don't tell me anything, I don't want to know anything, just leave me alone. That's how it looks, or that the accusation that we, we're drop, we've dropped out of the real world, or we're not, we're not uh, doing our duty, uh, we're not participating in the society, we're not this and that. This is, these, these are the assumptions that other, that other beings make from their own particular viewpoint and angles of, and, and distortions that they, they look through. But as you can see, as you as you awaken more and more and contemplate and understand more and more the Dhamma, then you you can understand why the world is the way it is, why the society is like this, why these things happen, why there are wars, and why people are cruel and unkind and selfish and and why there is so much fear, anxiety in, in the society.